This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 3rd, 2020. I'm Megan Cantwell. In this week's show, Joel Goldberg talks to news writers from science about exciting areas of research and policy to look out for in the upcoming year. And I speak with Beatriz Pinto Gonzalez about carnivorous plant traps, how they formed, and what that could tell us about their evolutionary history. In this segment, we'll turn to the areas to watch for 2020. Here, writers from science forecast areas of policy and research likely to make the news this year. They've culled the chaos and identified some of the top stories. I'm Joel Goldberg. Now we have Anne Gibbons, contributing correspondent at Science. For 2020, she's calling attention to a new method of examining the lives of people who live far in the past, say, a million years ago. The technique focuses on ancient proteins, remnants of prehistoric life, which could fill in some of the blanks left over from DNA analysis of archaeological finds. Hi, Anne. Hi, Joel. It sounds like we're talking about something like fossil CSI, only by that thinking one would expect DNA to be the most valuable molecules rather than proteins. So why is it that proteins are so important to this kind of analysis being done on these million-year-old specimens? So for fossil detective work where you're looking back in time, DNA is the best molecule, but it is more fragile than proteins. It degrades more easily, and the oldest ancient DNA we have from early human fossils is about 440,000 years, and from an ancient polar bear, about 600,000 found in conditions that were perfect, cold glacial conditions in the Arctic or in a cave. So now what's really exciting is researchers are being able to get ancient proteins that are much older from a wide range of bones and teeth and other materials that can shed light on early human evolution and the evolution of other animals. So the first step is to search fossils of human remains. What can scientists glean from the proteins in those remains? So the first thing that they often want to do is determine whether a fragment of bone or a bit of tooth is actually from an early human ancestor. They might have a fragment that they can't identify just by looking at it. And so what they can do is look at the makeup, the building blocks of the protein, such as collagen. The different amino acids varies between modern humans and Neanderthals, for example. 
So this method was already used to identify Neanderthal bone from one site and then another kind of human from another place and differentiate them from modern human bones. So it's great for classification. But the other things that people can do with ancient proteins is they can use them to determine the sex of a fossil. They can also use them to date the fossils if you have, say, early human ancestor bones in a site along with animal bones. You can look at the decay of the proteins, the actual molecular makeup, and that can tell you how old, which fossil's older than the other fold. So it can help you do relative dating as, at a site, which is great. And then also, we're using proteins to learn about, say, the types of milk people might have been drinking when you're looking at er early use of dairying. Getting those diets of the ancient humans. You got it. And, and with the Neolithic Revolution, the revolution to agriculture, there are questions about whether the first milk that people drank in the steppe of Russia and other places, was it camel milk? Was it goat milk? So you can begin to get at diet and the types of food and drink people are consuming and get at quality of life issues as well, which is really interesting. So it's really about finding the way of life of those ancient humans. I think ultimately, yes. First, identifying who you've got in an archaeological site, but then what does it reveal you about who these people were or the animals that were there? And so scientists aren't merely looking at proteins for these ancient humans and their remains. They're also looking at artifacts, more recent artifacts, such as ceramic pots, parchment from manuscripts, even beeswax. What can scientists learn, especially in regard to humans, by casting this wide net over archaeological specimens? So with the books, you're learning often about who was making them. You can get the sex of the person with the proteins who's making the books and working on the manuscripts. You can learn about what kind of animals were used to make the parchment. You can also learn about the kinds of the economy, what kind of animals they were trying to, that they had abundant supplies of. With the beeswax, it would tell you about the sources for the wax, what bee colonies, how far away did they go to get their wax and to make it. So you start to get information about the lifestyles of ancient people, and you can do that for any, any time period that the proteins survive from. Okay, and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Ann Gibbons is a contributing correspondent at Science. Now we have Kelly Servick, staff writer at Science. Her area to watch for 2020 is a somewhat eerie subject, the transplantation of pig organs into humans. These cross-species transplants, known as xenotransplants, are already being performed on non-human primates and may soon be primed for human trials. Hi, Kelly. Hi. Why is it that scientists are hoping to put pig organs into people? So really simply, we don't have enough organs. Um, there are more than 100,000 people in the U.S. alone who need some kind of organ transplant and are waiting for a suitable organ. Um, and so researchers have been thinking for a while about possibly using pig organs, which are pretty similar size and structure, um, if we could raise pigs to provide hearts or kidneys or pancreases or maybe livers, um, that could, could make up the shortage. So what's keeping these types of transplants from being implemented? The big hurdle has always been that our bodies, thankfully, know how to recognize foreign material, um, and our immune system is designed to attack anything that it sees as an invader. And so pig cells and pig tissues are making molecules that human cells don't. 
So unless scientists can sort of convince the human body that a pig organ is not an invader, that organ is probably not going to integrate harmoniously into into its new host. And maybe that's not so unexpected that the human body is rejecting some aspects of these pig organs or will. Immune rejection is even a problem for human organs transplanted into a different human, right? But But that problem gets a lot more extreme when you have a different species. And speaking of different species, there are these non-human primates who are involved. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So the testing in in monkeys is sort of a stepping stone to to figure out whether a pig organ can survive in a primate and um, can be safe. Um, So that's sort of a a requirement for these research groups before they're going to have permission to test these things in humans. Okay. So the non-human primate step is a very important part of where this research is going. What developments can we expect to see in the next year around the issue? I think there's a lot of excitement in this field right now um, and a lot of momentum, uh, partially because of of CRISPR genome editing that's making it possible to uh, make really precise insertions into the pig genome um, and to make a whole lot of changes at once. So what we're seeing now is several companies sort of designing their ideal engineered pig, right, putting a whole bunch of genetic changes um, into pigs. And um, there are a couple of U.S. companies that already have those pigs sort of thriving. And so, yeah, what we're going to see in the coming year or so, I think, is more uh, non-human primate testing as groups are preparing to get permission for human trials. What are some of those groups and countries you're speaking about? So a couple of the front runners, there's a Virginia-based company called Revivicor that's making pigs that have, I believe, nine modified genes that are sort of designed to provoke less of an immune reaction in a human body. Um, And there's a company called eGenesis, which was founded by um, Harvard geneticists that is collaborating with a company in China to produce uh, some of the most extensively edited pigs that have ever been created for the purpose of transplant. What type of testing do you think we'll see in people first? So the first trials are not likely to be like whole hearts or whole kidneys. They're more likely to be, for example, cornea transplants from a pig to treat blindness or uh, pancreatic cells for diabetes. So I think researchers are sort of thinking about ramping their way up in complexity from there. Kelly, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Now we have Jeff Mervis, senior correspondent at Science. Jeff is going to talk to us about an area to watch for 2020. Fear of Foreign Influence on Science in the United States. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Joel. So we're talking about the way that the U.S. is reacting to foreign influence. We know U.S. lawmakers aren't exactly waiting around to tackle the issue of foreign influence on domestic scientific research. For example, the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2020 will create two new bodies to address foreign influence on research in the U.S., I'm wondering, what are some of the recent developments in government regarding this foreign influence? Yes. Well, as you say, this is a very contentious issue, and it's likely to be even more so in 2020. I think legislators and executive branch agencies, research agencies that fund uh, scientists are trying still to define the scope of the problem and understand how different it is than what has been the case in the past. But that's difficult to do because the intelligence community doesn't quantify cases 
where there has been a violation of U.S. policies. It's also important to understand how often these violations are deliberate or whether better training would solve the problem. A third issue that government is grappling with is whether we need another way to fence off certain types of sensitive research besides labeling it classified. The current rules say that research is either classified or it is open, but a lot of legislators are pushing for some kind of gray area that would be controlled, and that's where the debate is actually hottest. There really is a division then between the way government views the situation versus the way scientists and institutions see this. Is that right? Right. It's There's two cultures, uh, the intelligence and national security community and the research community. They speak different languages. They have different priorities. They have different values. I think they are slowly trying to find common ground, and the common ground is balancing national security interests versus the traditional openness that the research community has enjoyed and that has allowed the U.S. to become a scientific superpower. It's not unique to the United States, but it is part of Western nations' approach to scientific inquiry, the rules of the game, as it were. So we know there's a clear distinction between classified and unclassified research. Should there be a third category in between? Well, many politicians feel that there needs to be. There's debate over whether you call it sensitive or controlled or something else. The current U.S. policy goes back to 1985, a presidential directive from Ronald Reagan that said, classify when you need to, but otherwise fundamental research should be open. But in 2008, then-President George W. Bush came out with a third category called Controlled Unclassified Information, and President Barack Obama in 2010 modified that but retained that category. So that's going to be another debate this year between legislators who say we need to do more to restrict research and scientists who say that would throttle back on U.S. innovation. Scientists feel that it's really impossible to fence off an area like quantum science or artificial intelligence and to separate fundamental research from its applications and the technologies. This was Jeff Mervis, senior correspondent for science, speaking about fear of foreign influence in U.S. research. These have been a few of science's areas to watch for 2020. To discover the rest, you can pick up a copy of the January 3rd issue of Science or visit sciencemag.org. Stay tuned for my interview with Beatriz Pinto Gonzalez about carnivorous plant traps. This week's episode is brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates hands-on projects for kids of all ages to make learning about STEAM fun. A KiwiCo subscription is the perfect gift for every young explorer, engineer, and artist in your life. KiwiCo is defining the future of play by making it engaging, enriching, and seriously fun. They create hands-on projects and toys designed to expose kids to concepts in STEM, art, and design. 
Their mission? To help kids build creative confidence and problem-solving skills and have a blast while doing it. There are eight lines to choose from, catering to different age groups and topics, like the Panda Crate for babies or the Eureka Crate for kids 14+. Each box comes with all the supplies needed for that month's project, plus detailed kid-friendly instructions. KiwiCo projects are available via flexible monthly subscriptions or for individual purchase. They have gifts for kids of all ages, so there's something for everyone on your list. KiwiCo is offering you the chance to get your first month for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects, visit kiwico.com slash magazine. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash magazine. Carnivorous plants enrapture people's attention, but until recently, it wasn't understood how these complex leaf traps formed. Beatriz Pinto Gonzalez and colleagues published a paper in Science that delves into how these leaf traps form and what this means for the evolutionary history of plants, from flat leaves to more complex shapes. Thanks so much for joining me. No problem. It's a pleasure. Before we dive into the findings of your paper, could you talk a little bit about carnivorous plants in general? Are they pretty common throughout the world? Carnivorous plants have been fascinating to plant biologists for a long time. They're actually quite prominent in a lot of ecosystems. People usually think of the more flashy ones like the Venus flytrap that traps flies and you can see it in action. But they have such a range of habit types and leaf types and praying types that they can sometimes go unnoticed in the ecosystem. But they are really all around the world and in very different ecosystems. Something that they do have in common in their habitats is that they will live in areas where there is poor nutrient access. So typically areas where the soil is waterlogged and so all the nutrients are washed away. And carnivory evolves as an adaptation to that pressure as a second source of nutrients from the animals. Your team's research centered around a specific carnivorous plant called Utricularia gibba. What made this plant ideal to use as a model? Utricularia gibba is part of a large complex of species of the genus called Utricularia. And it's one of the smallest carnivorous traps that has an active preying mechanism. And so it was really the, a good choice to have in the lab because of its being so small, we can grow great quantities of it to do our experiments. And it so happens that this very species that we use has one of the smallest plant genomes in the whole world. And this is a very attractive quality for a model system in the lab. Yeah, of course. So that is a good one to study. And in the past, researchers have proposed different types of theories as to how flat or cup-shaped types of leaves are created. Could you talk a little about what these past theories are? People have thought that the traps evolved by one flat leaf folding in on itself over its top surface and then fusing along the margin. Mm. Now, it is not a theory that provides an explanation for how the developmental process that usually generates a flat leaf has been modified to make a carnivorous plant trap. Nevertheless, it is a theory that provides some hypothesis, which is what a theory is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And one of those is that the inside of the trap corresponds to the top surface of a flat leaf and the outside of the trap corresponds to the bottom surface of a flat leaf. 
how did you look at the developmental processes that underlie the formation of these more complex leaf shapes? Typically, you will need to find the primordium. So that's the very earliest shape that you can recognize of the organ. So where the stem cells have divided and produced a little mound of cells that then is going to take shape. And you do that by looking at the apex of the plant where all the organs are being produced. In our case, because they are so well protected within this mesh of leaves, what we did was dissect the different stages, stain them and then observe them at the microscope. These structures are very tiny. They start at around 30 microns. So it was really important to have confocal microscopy and staining techniques to be able to image the process. What did you ultimately find was determining how these complex shapes were forming? Was this something that was happening really, really early on in the development of the leaf? Absolutely. So Unlike that theory that I told you about where a flat leaf is first formed and then folds in on itself and fuses to make the trap, what we saw is that the making of that cup structure, the trap, and the making of the flatness of it or the blades, as we call it, Mm -hmm. they are occurring at the same time. This was very important because in modeling which was how we tried to understand how the genes were shaping the organ, we had to really capture both of these events of morphogenesis at the same time. So very early on, the two processes, both of making the thin walls of the trap and making the hollow bit of the trap are very linked. Were you surprised by this? Not necessarily surprised, but not at this stage of how they are so intimately linked, Mm -hmm. but how early it happens, and also in very few steps, you get a very close to final shape. And even the finer details of the shape, like the apparition of the door, which closes the trap, of the thresholds and of the antennae, it happens very early on during development. In your paper, you describe this as a simple shift in gene expression. What about it is simple and how does this shed light on the evolutionary history maybe of forming these flat leaves to more complex leaves. The second bit of what we found out was that those genes that are expressed on the top half of a flat leaf are expressed on the inside of the trap, exactly as predicted. And genes that are expressed on the bottom half of the leaf are expressed on the outside of the trap, exactly as had been predicted. To generate the trap, the gene that is expressed normally on the top half of the leaf needs to be expressed in a very small restricted domain for the trap to be able to form that invagination and the hollow. What we call a simple process of expression domain shift is not in fact so simple and we still don't understand how those domains may be restricted. Mm -hmm. What we call simple is that in our models, we just need to invoke the domain shift, no different rules about how the growth is being processed Mm -hmm. to be able to generate those shapes. So every growth rule that we put in the model is exactly the same between the flat leaf and the trap. The only thing that changes is a domain of expression. And this we call simple because it means that in our view, to evolve these complex shapes, the traps, 
you only need to restrict the expression of a few genes rather than reinvent a whole process of growth patterns to be able to generate these shapes. Right. There are some pretty cool visuals in your paper that show this computational model in action and highlight what the potential evolutionary paths could have been for the development of these traps. So it's really interesting to see the power of it in this case. With this, we were able to propose a whole theory for the recurrent evolution of these traps. But hopefully it will inspire people to use this approach to go back, revisit some of the fundamental phenotypes and mutants that have been described Mm -hmm. that have implicated genes in certain processes and really dig down into how these genes may be influencing those phenotypes and growth to generate those, those shapes. So I guess we can expect a lot of interesting plant evolution research in the coming years from these models. I certainly hope so. Evolution development, understanding the diversity of plants, because they are so amazing. Plants deal with so much out there because of their sessile nature. Everybody loves saying this. Plants don't move, so they have to really be inventive in the ways that they deal with all the challenges the environment throws at them. And their amazing shapes are really one of the key aspects of this adaptation. As we see in the carnivorous plants who live in bogs and have no access to nutrients and develop those sticky leaves. Thank you so much, Beatrice. No worries. Beatrice Pinto Gonzalez is a postdoctoral researcher at the John Inez Research Center in Norwich, England. You can find a link to her research at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, and many other places. This show was produced by Joel Goldberg and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Special thanks to Sarah Crespi. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.